News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thanks, Carrie. Appreciate it. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, you're going to want to get them. There should be some in the seat seat pockets in front of you there. I think they're red in color, so grab those. Um, Hey, by the way, uh, a couple weeks ago we did the the whole... um, cell phone thing, and some of you mailed some things. There was one that was returned, like returned to sender, uh, and if you did, uh, like, bad address, if you uh, mailed one of those out, kind of old school style, just check this and make sure that uh, that's not yours, because we'd hate for that person not to feel the love, you know what I mean? All right, so my name's Micah, and I'm glad you're here. we got a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time to do it, so no antics, no silly stories or anything like that. We're just getting straight to it. You guys up for it? Okay, we started a series last week called This Just In. This is a new series uh, on the Beatitudes, the study of the Beatitudes. So last week, we did a little work on just, uh, as we enter this study, some things to think about. Uh, Tonight, I want to land this thing in three different places, uh, kind of three spots I want to stop at. The first is just some background work. We've got to understand, one of the things we talked about last week was, if if we have any chance of understanding Jesus and what he's saying in these verses, we have to understand him in his original context. So... Before we do that, I have notes on my, my thing here that I just realized I should tell you. There are some offering bags on the seats here. We're going to receive an offering, so if you have one near you, pass it to the other end. If you get it at the other end, you're one of our ushers, so thanks for being here. Hang on to it. You can bring those up uh, in our closing set of worship. Um, so if we're going to understand Jesus, if we have any chance, we've got to understand him in his original context. So uh, I want, we're going to talk about some of the background. We're going to talk about the words that are actually in this passage. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What are the words that, that Jesus used, that Matthew wrote down, that we get in our Bibles? What do they mean? And then lastly, what are the implications of that? What does that mean for us? If this is what the words meant then, and this is the spirit of them, then here's how they land here in our context in 2010. 10, 2010, that's hard to say. I don't think I've written the date down yet and gotten it right. You know, I always put the, the O for 09, and then I have to go back and scoot the one in there. Um, so, first and foremost, the background. Matthew chapter 5. Here's some of the background that's important for us to understand and know about Matthew's telling of this particular story with Jesus and the Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount. First and foremost, in, in Matthew chapter uh, 4, at the end of it, Verse 25, he says, Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across Jordan started following Jesus. So there's this idea that there's this large crowd of people, and there's this itinerant preacher-teacher guy who's wandering the the, the hillsides of of, uh, the first century, basically the, the Middle East, and this is not uncommon for people like this to do this. Often there would be teachers and preachers who would go from town to town and village to village teaching and sort of... Uh, preaching and teaching their understanding of what it meant to follow God. So this isn't abnormal. But Matthew tells us that there's a group of people who are now gathering. There's a large crowd that's following Jesus. And he says that there's a group from Decapolis, which happens to be uh, a group of ten cities that Alexander the Great founded. Uh, So the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, uh, across the Jordan, and all this other stuff. What Matthew wants us to understand and what he wants us to know is that there is a total smorgasbord of people 
who are coming and who are now following Jesus. Uh, Why is this important? Matthew's audience, when he wrote his gospel, his primary audience, does anybody know who Matthew was writing to from Bible 101? Anybody remember this? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller. I heard it yet. Jews, okay? So Matthew's audience is a Jewish group of people. So for Matthew to say there's a group of people following Jesus, gathered around Jesus from the Decapolis, ten cities uh, further away from Jerusalem, uh, Roman territory, the uh, Judea, Samaria, not Samaria, Jerusalem, and all over the place, what Matthew's saying is there is a group of people who's following Jesus who are not Jews. This group that's gathered here are Gentiles and Romans and pagans and all sorts of other people. So if you're a Jew and you're here at Matthew's first audience, you've been told your entire life that the people who are now gathering around Jesus are unclean, uh, not spiritual, not God's people. Uh, they're ceremonially unclean and you really shouldn't have much contact with them, which is an interesting way for Matthew to start his gospel uh, or this story. So it's, it's this idea that the narrative and this good news of the gospel is, is being announced to and is heading out to all of the people that you would never expect it to be given to. If you're a Jew and you're Matthew's first audience, you would expect that this announcement, if this guy is the Messiah, that the gospel announcement of God is going to go to pious Jews, religious Jews. Paradoxically, who does it end up going to? What's the opposite of a pious Jew? Right? An unrighteous pagan. These are all of the people who are gathered in this crowd, and these are the people that Matthew wants us to know. This is who the gospel announcement goes out to. This is the Sermon on the Mount. These are the people getting this information. Uh, He then goes on and he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. Now, could be a a benign uh, piece of information, like he sits down, okay, so what, right? It's really important from a Jewish audience, from a Jewish perspective. Because if you're a teacher and you're a traveling guy in the first century who is a rabbi or teacher, uh, they didn't have rabbis in Jesus' time, that came later. But if you're one of these teachers that's moving around, when you were teaching, whenever you read the scriptures, if you were going to quote something from the scriptures from the Torah, you would stand. But when you sat down, that meant that was a symbol that you were teaching and you were going to begin to teach with authority, right? How many of you remember the passage where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? You remember that one? A yoke in the first century, or at least as they would understand it, is a, a particular teacher's understanding of the Torah. So the first five books of the Bible, here's, I'm a, I'm a rabbi, a teacher of the, uh, in the first century, and I understand it like this. And then the, my disciples who would follow me would take my yoke upon them, my understanding of Torah. So Jesus, uh, Matthew really wants us to know that Jesus is about to teach, and he's about to teach with authority. So Matthew tells us he sits down because the next thing that Matthew's going to do is connect Jesus with a really, really, really important Jewish figure from, from old time, from old school, uh, which is the third piece of this background. Matthew says that Jesus went up on a what? A mountainside, right? This is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus goes up on a mountainside and he sits down and he's now teaching with authority. And Matthew's connecting Jesus to, for 5,000 points, what Old Testament character, if you've been around me long enough, you know this answer? Moses, okay? He goes up on a mountainside because Jesus is about to tell us this lifestyle of the kingdom of God. What does it mean to follow God? 
This is what it means to follow God. Do these things. Live this out. Live in this way. When Moses went up on the mountain in, Exodus, in, in, the, in the story of the Exodus, what did he get when he got up on the mountain? The law, right? This is how you're to be God's people. This is what it looks like to live as faithful people of Yahweh. So Moses goes up on the mountainside and he gets this law from God, this, this understanding of what it means to be God's people, and he comes back down. Matthew is absolutely connecting him. If, 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 go back to Matthew chapter 2 and read the story of the visit of the, the Magi who come to see Jesus and then connect that with the story of Pharaoh and Egypt and the whole Exodus. It's all there. Okay? Matthew's trying to say here, Jesus... He's connecting him to Moses and the story of the Exodus in all sorts of different ways. And it's really interesting. Turn, flip with me to Luke chapter 6, to your right a little bit. Luke chapter 6. I'll, I want to show you why this is so important or why it's not just random. Luke chapter 6, this is a parallel passage from the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, right? So a historic event happens. Jesus goes up somewhere and he teaches and he says a bunch of stuff. Matthew writes it down. Luke writes it down. This is Luke's version of it. Verse 17 of chapter 6. He went down with them and stood on a level place. Large crowd of his disciples gathered around. Again, lots of different people. Jerusalem, Judea, Tyre, and Sidon. Verse 20 says, he looks at his disciples and he says, Blessed are you who are the, blessed are you the poor, for yours is the kingdom. So same historic event, right? Why does Luke say he's on a level place and Matthew tells us he's on a mountainside? Either one of them is lying and, and one of them is right and one of them is wrong or uh, you know, historians and scholars go back and forth and they're like, well, maybe Jesus was up on a mountain but he was on kind of a plateau and Luke sort of taps into the plateau thing and Matthew taps into the whole mountainside thing. Here's what I think. It doesn't matter where he was. It doesn't matter if he was on a mountain or if he was on a flat place from a historical perspective. It doesn't matter. Because each author of the gospel, Luke's, Luke's gospel, is written to a particular group of people for certain reasons. Matthew's gospel is written to a particular group of people for certain reasons. And so for Matthew to take editorial rights on a particular historic event and say, Jesus went up on a mountainside, because he's absolutely tapping into this Old Testament understanding of the Exodus for the Jews, and he's writing to Jews and he's trying to connect the dots. Jesus, Moses, Exodus, New Exodus. It makes total sense for Matthew. So it doesn't really matter where he was. For Matthew's original audience, they totally connect. They say, oh, he went up on a mountainside. Ding, 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 ding. Lights are flashing. Exodus motif in their minds. So that's a little bit of the background that we get as we jump into this thing. Now let's look at some of the words that are used here. There's three major, uh, three sections or three major words I want to look at. The first one is this idea of blessed. Now if you were here last week, you remember, the Greek word is makarios, and uh, it, it can mean... Uh, can be translated fortunate or uh, congratulations or like good for you. Most commonly, it's translated happy, right? Blessed are you, happy are you, fortunate are you. Uh, I would submit to you tonight that the whole idea of happy really completely misses the point. Uh, one author says this, and I, I've got the quote up here for you. Happy, however, is not the correct translation in this context. Happiness is subjective. The same things do not always make everybody happy, and we can certainly rule out mourning as a producer of happiness, right? Later on in this sermon, Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted, right? Happiness is not typically connected with mourning. Uh, instead, Jesus makes objective statements or judgments about the state of the citizens of God's kingdom. 
So Jesus makes objective declarations, statements about the people who are part of his kingdom, and he declares not what they feel like, but what God thinks of them. People who, with these qualities, gain his approval. Is there one more on there? Because God thinks well of them, they are blessed. Uh, one other author, his name's Frederick Buchner. If we're really going to understand this, this word blessed... He, he says this, and I, and I think this fits probably the best with any of the things that I've, that I've read. It's, this, it's a divine, I am with you. So to be blessed is not a, a subjective statement about how I'm feeling, but it's an objective statement from God declaring something about this God and you and in this interaction with you. He says, blessed are you. It's this divine, I am with you. It's a, it's a, I am on your side. It's this idea of God's favor is on you. So bless are you. So the word blessing in this context is an announcement of, that Jesus makes that God is with you, that God is on your side, that God's favor rests on you. So Jesus declares this blessing of God, the favor of God, and that I am with you to God. And who does he declare it to? The people who have it all together, right? The people who've got all their ducks in a row. The people who, on a holiness and righteousness scale, get an A. These guys are top of the, top of the class, right? This is who God's favor and God's blessing rests on. Of course, that's the way it works, right? No, Jesus announces God's blessing to the poor in spirit, which seems completely baffling, right? Why would God, God's blessing and God's favor in his I am with you and his his support of you and his blessing of you, why would it go to the poor in spirit? That doesn't make any sense. And so to try to make it make sense, oftentimes we sort of, we understand the poor in spirit to be um, this idea that am I humble enough to, to acknowledge my total dependence on God? Which becomes this place of humility that we strive for, that we try to get ourselves to, and therefore it becomes a character quality that we try to attain or that we desire and work towards. And again, I think that misses the point of what Jesus is saying. There's, there's two words in Greek that are translated poor, okay? I, don't, I was going to ask Stu, my resident Greek expert on this one, how to pronounce these, but go ahead and flip to that next slide there if you would. The first one, there it is, I don't know how to pronounce it. As you can imagine, I don't want to take a shot at it, <laughs> but that's what it is. This, this, this word uh, designates the working poor or, or people who own little property. So it's specifically talking about an economic position, right? And it's used twice, once in 2 Corinthians and once in Luke, the, the whole story of the widow who's poor, okay? That's the one use of it. The other word, which is this one, again, I don't, really, I don't know my Greek very well, but there it is. It literally means to crouch or cower as one who is helpless, uh, it signifies a beggar or a pauper, one in abject poverty, totally dependent on others for help and destitute of even the necessities of life. This word is the one that's used in the Beatitudes. So this meaning, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about poor in spirit. It's not this something that we're striving towards. It's not something that I'm trying to attain, this humble attitude that I, that I, that I recognize something, and then I try to get to that point where I'm, you know, I recognize that it's, it has nothing to do with striving. It's this idea that this person is totally in poverty. They are uh, destitute, if you will. And Jesus announces the favor and blessing and presence of God to the people who are losers, 
to the spiritual zeros. One, one author, Dallas Willard, says, to the morally bankrupt, to, uh, to the pathetic, the lame, and the out of it. These are the people, according to the text, according to how the word is used, these are the people whom Jesus announces, blessed are you, the poor in spirit. So Jesus announces this to those folks. You can see why this whole idea is, is very counterintuitive. Because this is not the way we think God works, right? Jesus announces this blessing to all of the people who are outside of our circles. If you remember a while back, we talked about the whole hula hoop idea. That we draw these circles and we say, these are the people who are in, and anyone who's on the outside of the circle is out, right? We're in, they're out, or we're right and they're wrong. All of the people who are on the outside of the circles are the people in this story whom Jesus is announcing, blessed are you, the poor in spirit, the broken, the, 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 the downtrodden, the hopeless, the destitute, the spiritual zeros, the lacklusters. All of the people who receive failing grades on the holiness and righteousness scale, these are the people, it's here that God shows up and says, I am with you. I'm on your side. And what does Jesus say they get? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This idea of the kingdom of heaven, um, when we say heaven, oftentimes our mind immediately goes to some other place, some post-mortem reality, sort of floating in the sky, ethereal, like not here on earth, out there, right? After we die, we might go to heaven. That's what we think of when we say this. And when Matthew says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we immediately say or assume that the poor in spirit get that. But if you're a Jew in the first century, that's the furthest thing from your mind. They had no concept of that. Rather, a Jew in the first century, when Matthew says kingdom of heaven, in, in stories in Mark and Luke, where, where uh, Jesus would say kingdom of God, in Matthew's version, in Matthew's gospel, he says kingdom of heaven. So this idea of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is the same, the same idea in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels. They just say it a bit differently. Uh, if you're a Jew in the first century, you understand the world to be really in two different, two different realms or two different uh, uh, time periods, if you will. One is the age, to, the age that we live in, this age, or the current, the present age, which includes, for them, oppression and slavery and uh, brokenness and all kinds of craziness, right? Rome's got their thumb on them. This is the age that they live in. And the Jews understood there to be another age, one that would be ushered in by who? the Messiah of the Old Testament who would come back to the world and put the world to right. And on the other side of that, the age to come, this is basically, simply put, when God's rule and reign would be recognized. So when Matthew and Mark and Luke, when they say kingdom of God and Matthew says kingdom of heaven, same idea, what it simply means is this, where the rule and reign of God would be recognized, the kingdom of God, where what God hopes for and dreams for, for creation, would be reality for those who live here. Jesus prays about it in the, in the, in the, the what's that one prayer that we always pray? Lord's Prayer, thank you, thank you. I was just out of my head. The Lord's Prayer, uh, when he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? When God's will is done on earth like it is in heaven, it's essentially saying that earth becomes the place or wherever 
God's rule and reign and his hopes and dreams for creation are being lived out and happening, it's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So when Matthew says that this is what the poor in spirit get, it's not something off in a far off distant land when, after we die. He's talking about something that's very real and present. Let me see if I can sum up these three small phrases. So if I'm going to like... Uh, taking all the things that we've talked about so far, about the words and how they're used and all that, this is kind of my best paraphrase of these passages. Here it is. To those of you who are brokenhearted, to those of you who are lost, confused, at the end of your rope, desolate, beggars crouched and cowering, helpless, dependent on God to meet your most basic of needs, to you, you are blessed. God is with you there. God is on your side right where you are. Not once you put it all together and you get all your crap in a line. Not there. Not then. No, right now where you are, God is with you. His favor, his blessing is on you, is with you, is for you. Because it's here that you can see God And it's here that you can even need God. And it's here that you are desperate. And it's here that you meet God. It's to those, and to those who see and hear God in this place, because this is where he meets you, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the the place where God's hopes and dreams for creation are beginning to be lived out. Blessed are you, the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So what are the implications of this? Uh, what, are, what are the so what's? You know, if we're going to take a couple things away, we need to understand this. Again, this idea, blessed are you, the poor in spirit, this is an announcement, a declaration about the nature of God and the nature of his kingdom. So Jesus is speaking to a group of people, a a smorgasbord of humanity, all kinds of folks, uh, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, pagans, all kinds of people. And he says, here's the deal. I'm not commanding you to do something. I'm not giving you a list of things you need to do in order to aspire to or strive after. This is not a command or, or this is an announcement. This is a declaration about the nature of this God that Jesus represents, that Jesus is the fulfillment of, that Jesus is the fullness of. It's a declaration about the nature of God and the nature of his kingdom. It's an announcement. It's not a command. It's not something that we try to climb up or strive to. Because really, who wants to be poor in spirit, right? Who wants to, be, who wants to mourn? Who wants to be meek? And who wants to be... None of those things are things that we should be striving for. But Jesus is saying, blessed are you who are there because in your brokenness, God says, I am with you. And it's here that you meet him. It's an announcement. So this first beatitude is an announcement of God's favor and blessing. It's not a command. It's, it's Jesus announcing and declaring something about this God. I would say, secondly, that it's totally and utterly counterintuitive. You might be sitting here tonight and, and, and your wheels are spinning and you're like, wait a second, how is this possible? Like, are you actually saying that, that God's favor and his blessing and his I am with you is with all the people who, who, who the church typically says are on the outside? That's exactly what I'm saying. And you're saying, why? 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 How is this possible? It's counterintuitive. 
it goes against all of our sensibilities about what we think God should do and who he should be with and where he should be acting and whose favor, who, who should be receiving his favor or being the, the, the recipient of his blessing. It's not about graded holiness. We talked about this last week where, where we, get, we get graded based on how holy we are or righteous we are because we do these things. That's not what's going on here. No, it says God is with you when you are at your lowest, when you are morally bankrupt. And it's here that God arrives and he says, I am with you and I'm on your side. And for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see God in these moments, everything changes. It's counterintuitive. And we, we, we ask, why, why? How is this possible? That's why, why, why? There's a, there's a movie, it's called Man on Wire. Has anybody ever seen this before? You guys remember the guy, the French, he was a French guy? He, uh, he, he saw the two towers, the Twin Towers in New York that are no longer there, obviously. Uh, and he saw the, the b- blueprints for when they were being built, and, he's, and he saw it, and he's like, I'm going to string a line across it, and I'm going to walk a tightrope between the two towers. So he and his buddies get together, and they plan this huge, massive, like, scandalous deal. And there's a, there's a documentary about this guy. Uh, and, and he does it. So at some point, they, they figure out a way to do it, and he puts the wire across there, and he walks across in between the two towers in New York City on a tightrope. And he's up there for like 45 minutes, and they can't get him down, and finally they get him down, and of course the news people are just having a, they were like flocking to the scene, right? And they get him back down to the bottom, and he comes out, and they're like, blah, 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 blah. they're asking all these questions, all these questions, and they're like, why? Why did you do this? Why did you do this? And in his retelling of the story, he says, only Americans would say why. Why, why, why? There is no why. It just is. He didn't have a reason. He just wanted to do it, and so he did it. Like, there's no, and they just, the the press just could not understand it. And they're like, why, why, why? He says, only Americans ask why, why, why. There is no reason. I just did it. If we can't get our heads around and our hearts around the fact that this announcement, this God that we're dealing with, oftentimes is counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense what he's doing when he shows up to the broken and the hurting and the lost and those who are outside of the circle. We say, why, why, why? If we can't get our hearts, if we can't at some point just say, because that's who God is. Because that's the God we're dealing with. Because that's the way he works. We will constantly ask why, why, why. It doesn't make sense. Why does he say to the woman who's caught in adultery? Why does he say to the, 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 the guy who's blind? Why does, why does he do the things that he does? Oftentimes they fall outside of our categories and our understandings. And why, why, why? There is no why. It's because that's the way God is. until we're able to stop asking why, 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 and we arrive at this conclusion that because this is what God is like, we will not see, hear, or experience what Jesus is talking about. This kingdom of heaven where God's hopes and his dreams and his, and his desire for creation happens. We, we won't have eyes to see it because this is how God is. I would say it's an announcement, it's counterintuitive, and then lastly, I want to close with this. To those of us who are doing fine, to those of us who uh, 
not because we hate God, not because we oppose God vehemently, not because we're, you know, uh, we have venom towards religion and all that kind of, not, not because of any of those reasons, but to those of us who are fine, who are making it okay, who, who are, you know, just cruising along and who really don't need God. We are in danger of getting exactly what we want. Let me say that again. We, you, me, are in danger of getting exactly what we want. And what is it that we want? Life without God. Right? I don't need, I, I don't need God. Things are okay. Things are fine. I, right? God will not push himself on you. And so when we say we don't need God, we will get exactly what we want in this life and in the life to come. We will get exactly what we want. People, people often ask, you know, why, why would God send people to hell? You know, that's a question that, I, that people ask all the time, people that are, are, you know, maybe not a part of the church. Why would, why would a good and loving God send people to hell? Two things I would say to that question. Number one, let's divorce ourselves or let's uh, remove ourselves from a, a really inaccurate understanding of hell, which isn't like some literal physical place, because let's just break this down for one second here. Stick with me. Don't stick with me. Okay, Jesus, when he talks about hell, he talks about it as a dark place where there is no light, right? And in another instance, he talks about it as a flaming fire, an inferno. It can't be both. <laughs> It can't be both, right? When Jesus talks about hell, maybe we should do a series on this further down the road. Uh, when Jesus talks about hell, he's using metaphorical language to explain something, to describe something, right? A reality that is real and true, but, but he talks about it in one sense as a dark place where there is no light, and in another as a place where there's like burning flames. Well, which one is it? It can't be both. So what Jesus is getting at is this idea. Hell is a place or hell is a, a, a situation where there is an absence of God either now and forever. Hell, as Jesus talks about it in the Gospels, is not a physical, literal location other than the fact that he's often referring to Gehenna, which was the city dump outside of Jerusalem, which is what we get translated as hell, but what he's getting at is we are in danger of getting exactly what we want. If we say, I don't need you, God, he'll say, okay. And you won't have God and his experience and his love and his mercy and forgiveness in this life or the next. So for you and I, as we read these Beatitudes, as we look at this passage, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is an announcement, a declaration about God and the nature of God in his kingdom. And he says, blessed are you who are brokenhearted, who are morally bankrupt. Blessed are the liars, the thieves, the adulterers, the fill in the blank. Blessed are you. Why? Because God says in that moment, in your brokenness, in your despair, in your spiritual zeroness, the God of the Bible the creator of the universe says, it's as if he's down on one knee and says, it's right there that I meet you. 
in that place, I am with you. And so for those of you who can relate to any of those, good news. The good news of the gospel, the work of Jesus on the cross, is nothing if it isn't God saying, in your brokenness, I'm there. In your worst nightmare, that's where I am with you. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, everything changes. For those who say, you know what? This life that I'm living is, is, is like hell on earth because it's lonely and desperate and desolate and broken and there's hurt and, and, and I can't do anything to change it. I am at my wits and I am at the end of my rope. I have tried everything and nothing satisfies. It's the God of the, the gospel is there in that moment and says, I'm here and I'm with you and what I have to offer is life. And for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see this God, blessed are you for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know where that hits you tonight, but for me, that's good news. Uh, let me pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come uh, and lead us in a, a couple of closing songs. But would you pray with me? God, uh, I want to thank you for um, this community, for this church, for this group of people uh, who are honestly seeking and trying to understand uh, who you are what it means, what, what Jesus and the cross and this whole idea of resurrection and what all of this means and how it plays out. We're, we're trying to understand uh, who you are. God, I pray that uh, as we ask questions, as we uh, in our brokenness cry out to you in, uh, in the places where we mess up and screw up and we acknowledge that, God, I pray that you would meet us there, that you would be the voice that says, I'm with you. That you would be uh, Emmanuel, the God who is with us. Would you teach us what it means to follow you? Uh, would you teach us what it means to, uh, to live out and live as a, a part of and in this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God? God, we long to, uh, to see you for who you are. And we worship you and... Uh, we give you our hearts and, and these songs and uh, some of what we've earned, uh, even our, our minds and our bodies, all of that tonight, we, we want to give them to you, God. So we thank you for this night. Well, uh, thank you, Micah. Are any of you bothered by that verse? <laughs>